Hi. Hello, hello. Looking at all of you. Enjoying seeing you. How's my volume? Okay. Great. Ah, well, um, I've been wandering around, as is my style, seemingly more and more so as I get older. Uh, those of you who know me know that I have always traveled hither and yon um, to the mountains and the deserts. And um, also I've been exploring other uh, branches of practice that um, I've come upon of late that I'm, I'm really wanting to share a little bit with you from uh, a book and a teaching that I've been exploring. Uh, it's uh, not from the Zen tradition, but it's from the roots that Zen came from, from the yoga tradition. Uh, from Kashmir. It's a, a book called The Radiant Sutras, translated by Lauren Roche. And actually, it's interesting. Um, how many of you remember Zen flesh, Zen bones? Raise your hand if you're old enough. <laughs> yes, those of us uh, don't mean to be ageist here, but this is a book. I mean, when I was in high school, uh, this was one of the first Zen books that I encountered. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, at the time when I was reading this in high school, I didn't know what it was, but it's actually a collection of some of our very favorite Zen stories. And, and interestingly enough, in the very back of the book, the last section is called Centering, and it's 112 little tiny verses. And that's actually the same uh, uh, sutra, a series of sutras that this book is. It's the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra from the eight, eight, 1800s from the Kashmirian uh, tradition. So the, one of the reasons I've been enjoying it, and uh, I'm not going to go trying to import some other kind of practice into our beautiful, beloved Zen temple, but what I always like to do is see connections. So what I've loved about this is studying Sanskrit, really, really getting into some of the Sanskrit terms that we have in Zen, but we don't necessarily um, go into them so much. We just, we have them. Like for example, you know, dukkha, good old dukkha, suffering, or it's translated as suffering. Uh, that's a Sanskrit word. And it's a Sanskrit word that means, um, as many of you probably know, and um, do is, uh, or dur, dukkha, durka, means uh, difficult or bad, uh, and ka is space. And so the images of a, a wheel that is uh, out of balance in its wheel well. So you could imagine if you're on a wagon and you're going along and you're, you're ah, it doesn't feel right, something's off here. That's dukkha. That's actually what it means. And so it's come to be translated as suffering. Uh, it also means uh, uncomfortableness, unease, difficulty, sorrow, trouble. But what it really means is that old wheels out of alignment. And similarly, sukha is su is uh, good. So su is good space, sukha, good space. The wheel is in alignment. The wheel is in balance. So that's one example of a Sanskrit term that um, we refer to 
um, in our Zen practice. Of course, there's many more, uh, you know, prajna, um, uh, shunya, shunyata, emptiness. So there's a couple of Sanskrit words that I want to talk about this evening. Uh, the form of this book that I've been enjoying and this teaching is that there's a little verse for each of these Sanskrit words and they're considered meditations. So there's actually, you know, a meditation on dukkha. Wow, let's see what that one is. I hadn't even thought I was going to read that, but uh, I'll read it to you just to give you a little flavor of, of, of this language. Um, that space is bad. This space is good. The ride is rough or the going is smooth. We are thrown into suffering. We are thrown into joy. Beloved soul mate, find the space in the center, the pulsing spaciousness, encompassing all opposites. Here, the essences of creation are at play, earth, water, fire, air, and space, and the senses that perceive them, the center is the dancing ground. So that's a little taste of the language. You can see why one such as I would be so enamored with this approach to meditation, uh, because that's kind of how I feel and think inside me. You know, even when I'm sitting Zaza in all those years, that's kind of what it would sound like inside me. So I've been really happy to find a book and a kind of a, a practice where I get to uh, just indulge in, in that. So here's, here's one of the two uh, Sanskrit phrases that I, I want to talk about tonight. And one of them is um, Ananda. Who knows what Ananda means? Raise your hand if you know what Ananda means. Shakti, would you like to tell us just for a moment your understanding of the word Ananda? Um. Well, coming from the yogic perspective, um, there are many different bodies that we have. And so I see um, Ananda as the bliss body. So it's, it's getting, you know, it's sort of unraveling the different layers and you're getting more towards the center of that. Beautiful. Yeah, good. Anybody else have a, yeah, so, so literally, I mean, and, and here's the other thing that I've been learning about Sanskrit. And I mean, I think it's the same as when you study the, the Japanese and the Chinese characters. Uh, you know, if you start getting into looking at some of the calligraphy that uh, underlies uh, a lot of the, the Zen teachings, you find out that one character or in Sanskrit, you know, well, they actually have our characters too. They're not uh, English you know, uh, Roman numerals, they're little, pretty little squiggly lines, the original Sanskrit. And one word can have 15 or 20 or 30 different meanings. And so it's one of those languages that, you know, you, you're not so much just having this direct, like, oh, this means that, but you're having a general sense of a whole universe of meanings that are dancing and singing together that create an experience of something. So here's some of the different words uh, that is how Ananda is translated. Happiness, joy, 
bliss, enjoyment, pleasure, the thing wished for, the end of the drama. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. And of course, who was Ananda? Buddha's best friend. Buddha's dear, dear beloved soul brother, who was always at his side, was Ananda. And Ananda was the one who finally convinced his buddy Shakyamuni Buddha to um, let women practice. You know, Mahapajapati all those years was trying to get her, her nephew to let the women in. And Ananda was the one who finally, you know, was able to soften Buddha's heart enough that he went, oh, okay, okay, yeah, 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 you can, you can, you can come in, you can come in auntie, <laughs> you and all your, all your women, uh, beautiful practitioners. So Ananda, you know, and again, much like Buddha, well, there's another Sanskrit term, Buddha, you know, Buddha awakened, awakened, the one who is awake is Buddha. So um, beautiful term to uh, contemplate, to meditate with this body, this bliss, this sense of bliss, of pleasure, of joy. Um, we talk about um, the Sambhogakaya, the bliss body. So this is the contemplation of Ananda is contemplating your own body of bliss and um, practicing with those things that actually bring you happiness, joy, pleasure, um, as, as, a, as a meditation. Let me read you the, the poem uh, here for Ananda. And again, we're not talking about the person. Uh, we're talking about the quality of, of joy, pleasure, happiness, and bliss. With one sweep of attention, gather in the whole universe and remember it as your body of bliss. The deep rhythms of life pulsating, stir an ambrosia flowing and overflowing everywhere. Drink the nectar of all pervading joy from the radiant cup that is this very body. I'm gonna read that again. These are really important instructions. With one sweep of attention, gather in the whole universe and remember it as your body of bliss. The deep rhythms of life pulsating, stir an ambrosia flowing and overflowing everywhere. Drink the nectar of all-pervading joy from the radiant cup that is this very body. Your very body, my very body. This opportunity to drink our experience and let it soak and saturate in and nourish us. 
it's biologically wise as well. I have spoken of this before from this seat. I was kind of looking back in my notes and said, oh yeah, I did a talk about sukkah a couple years ago. And I realized I did it right in the middle of the pandemic when we were all alone in our houses and a lot of us, we didn't have any touch and, you know, we were getting pleasure where we could, you know, in our gardens or on our daily walks or through Zoom <laughs> postage stamps or with our cats and dogs, you know, and I remember I, I gave a talk about the importance of opening and allowing that experience of, of pleasure. Um, sukha. We're very good at practicing with pain and suffering in Zen. We're masters at it. You know, it's one of the, the good and wonderful aspects of the Zen way is that we don't shy away from that, which is difficult. We don't try to candy, you know, cover, you know, sugarcoat things. And we don't turn away from difficulty. We face it. We, we drink it in as much as we then drink in the happiness and the bliss aspect of our lives. And yet at the same time, we need to balance the dukkha wing with the sukha wing. And this has always been one of my um, deepest um, wishes whenever I'm teaching, really in any of the forms that I teach in, be it Zen or just, you know, even when I was a, a, a teaching group facilitation, <laughs> I would always have to teach the two sides. You know, I would always have to say, yeah, structure is really important. Real rules and procedures, you know, are really important. And it's also really important to be in relationship with one another and to open our hearts. Right. So, so this is uh, this is this, this balance. And it's also biologically wise to um, learn how to um, take in and hold pleasure and um, enjoyment as wholesome. You know, we, we often talk here about uh, cultivating the wholesome and sustaining that which is wholesome. And that is our biological way that our organisms know that something is wholesome is that it feels good. That's, that's the way that our systems, our, our bodies, our, our beings go, oh, do that. That feels good. And so in uh, Buddha's Brain, which is also a book that I often quote from because I just love it so much, uh, Rick Hansen, the author, talks about, you know, we struggle often with how our minds like to just remember the bad stuff and remember the hard stuff. And our, mind, our, our brains actually get wired neurologically that they say that which uh, fires to, let's see, what did I say? That which wires together, fires together. Or no, it's the opposite. That which fires together, wires together, right? So the neurons that are firing and reinforcing their connection are the ones that make strong connections. And so one of the challenges we often have and one of the things that creates suffering really is when we focus on the negative all the time. When we only tell the bad part of the story, or we only look at that which is difficult rather than actually cre creating the opening for also looking at and inviting in and feeling that which is wholesome and, and which feels good. And what Hansen talks about is that when we're able to um, 
hold pleasurable thoughts in our awareness and sensations as well, that feeling, that feeling so beautifully described in that poem of, you know, drinking the cup of nectar, our body as a cup and allowing the, the nectar to, to, to flow through us, that that um, itself is, allows for wholesome neurons, <laughs> neurons that create, um, you know, um, happiness and enjoyment rather than fear and shame and scarcity uh, to, to do that. So um, it's very uh, good biologically as well as for our practices to make sure that we're um, allowing uh, both wings to flap. <laughs> so, so knowing that, there's another phrase that really caught my attention that was in um, another one of these sutras that I was studying. Um, and it was, um, it was a line, Parananda Svarupa. And there, Ananda is in there. And so I want to talk about that line because it's another uh, kind of a facet of this practice of allowing joy and, and cultivating joy and bliss and enjoyment. Parananda Svarupa. Uh, Svarupa means your own particular nature. And Parananda Svarupa is um, the, well, let's, let's look at it for a minute. Let me break it apart. Para, we know that. Gate, gate, para, gate, parasam, gate, bodhisvaha. So para means far, distant, um, ancient, beyond, next, wider. And in that line at the end of the Heart Sutra that's chanted at least once a day in, in, in every Zen center, you know, gate, gate, para, gate, parasam, gate, uh, bodhisvaha, beyond, beyond, right? So parananda sparupa is, ananda, there it is, joy, happiness, transcendent joy and happiness, big joy and happiness, broad and extensive joy and happiness, Svarupam at the existence of your very own true nature. You know that feeling when you just go, God, this feels so good. This is why I'm here on the planet. Do you ever feel that? I hope you do sometimes. I hope now and then you have that feeling of, oh, this is, thank you. You know, this is what I'm here for. And that is Parananda Svarupa. That is the transcendent joy of your own unique character. And I swear, when I read that line in the poem for Svarupa, I just was filled with so much happiness to consider that. Um, and here's, here's what the, the poem sounds like. Wherever and whenever you feel carried away, Rejoicing in every breath, there, there is your meditation hall. Cherish these times of absorption. Embrace these pleasures and know this is my true 
body. Nowhere is more holy than this. Right here is the sacred pilgrimage. Live in alertness for such a moment, my beloved, as if it were your one meeting with a creator. And I thought, ah, see, this is what I love, the way all the roots go back to the same place, because what does that remind you of in Zen? It's no other, I believe it's no other than when Dogen says in the Genjo Koan, here is the place, here the way unfolds. When you find your practice where you are, then practice unfolds, actualizing the fundamental point. When you feel that deep pleasure for just being the one you are, when you feel at home. I remember when Rachel was giving her um, talk right after her ordination and she talked about how when she first came to Zen, she just had this feeling of this makes sense to me. And many people will say that about coming, be it into a Zen temple or if you practice some other tradition, you know, when you step into a church or, or, you know, for me, when I step into a cathedral redwood grove or, uh, you know, uh, I climb a mountain in, in the desert and I, I come to the, 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 the beautiful quartz, you know, quartz rippled um, Buddha at the top of a, a beautiful mountain. Oh, you know, this, this is the temple. This is my true body. Um, I think it's even also, um, I was poking around a little bit more in, in some Zen language. Um, maybe that's not different also than when we talk about your Dharma position. You know, and it's so interesting because it's not ego. It's, and, and, and it's not like me, 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 true self. Or that, you know, and it's, it can be a little bit confusing because there's so much individual, you know, focus on the individual in our Western consumer culture. So this is not that kind of true nature. This is, this is the true nature of your, what, you know, what Dogen calls a juhoi means your Dharma position. When you just feel that alignment with um, your being and all beings, you know that you're, you know, where, that you, where you belong on Indra's net. You're one little jewel on this big, vast, interconnected net. But each of us is that one little jewel. There's nobody else like you. There never has been and there never will be. That's the, the true nature, you know, rather than just sort of a self-serving kind of uh, self. Um, I was talking to Gene about this because he, he's um, not, he wasn't able to come to the talk. And so... He was asking me what I was going to talk about, and I was describing this, and he sent me a quote from Suzuki Roshi uh, that he said is in the Zen Mind Beginner's Bind. I didn't look where it is, but I thought it was, you know, it's, it's the same point. So this is Suzuki. Um, the best way to understand yourself, oh, the best way, excuse me, the best way is to understand yourself, and then you will understand everything. So when you try hard to make your own way, you will help others and you will be helped by others. 
before you can make your own way. You cannot help anyone and no one can help you. It reminds me when I was um, considering whether or not to be ordained and I went, I was going to go to Tassajara to a practice period and was fussing about, oh, what does it mean to be a priest? And should I do this? Can I do this? I can't do this. And Catherine said, well, why don't you just talk to some of the other priests, interview them, ask them what their, what their experience is, what's their understanding of what is it to be a priest? So I went to one of the people whom I had, for whom I had the most amount of respect, Galen, and um, she runs the uh, Houston Zen Center now. And I asked her, I said, well, what is, what is it? What, what's your experience of, of, of being a priest? And she said, you know, they just want you to be yourself. They just want you to be yourself. And I believe that is this um, Parananda Svarupam this transcendent, great transcendent joy that we can taste um, to just be the one that we are. It's really also, I think, the kind of um, understanding, this kind of cultivation can really help us with uh, precept practice as well. Because, you know, in our Mahayana tradition, we don't have this sense of literally following the precepts. I mean, of course, you know, we, we want to be as close as we can to following the directions of, of the precepts, not killing and not stealing and not lying and not speaking bad of others, not speaking of their faults. But, you know, if you start trying, if you've ever tried to get into any kind of discussions with people about what that means and how to do it in your life, you'll very quickly see that it becomes very, very hard to no, well, what is the right interpretation? What is the right way to manifest this teaching? And so in, in our Mahayana way, we really emphasize that you, it's the cultivation of your own deep nature, your own deep Buddha nature that helps you answer the question for you about what is the right way to work with the precepts. And nobody can tell you exactly what that is. And I would even say to be wary of anybody who does try to tell you what it is. Because you're the only one who's, who's lived your whole life and you're the only one who lives in your body and who lives in your unique set of causes and conditions. So this, you know, purification, uh, wholesome being, you know, cultivating our, our enjoyment of who we are um, and practicing generosity that cultivates this um, ability to be as awake as we can be. I mean, Catherine used to say, there's only one precept, be Buddha. And by that, we don't mean you know, aspire to be like this Indian guy from, you know, way long ago. No, be Buddha. That means live as, you know, as one who is awake, as one who is completely present, as one who meets every being in every moment with the full, your full, full uh, nature of the gift of, of your human existence. 
I've been um, exploring lately with uh, thinking of it uh, as a, let's see, I wrote this. I was going to read this. Oh, who said that? And I went, oh, I did. <laughs> In my notes. <laughs> so I'll read it to you. I said it <laughs> this morning when I was at my typewriter. Um, when we live from our Dharma position, when we feel the joy of our own unique character, then we are in our right habitat, fulfilling our true function. And we can trust that our instincts are gonna tune us in to deeper wholeness and health. I've been, I've been using these terms habitat and function because I think they're really helpful, is as we're discovering the kind of creature that we are, you know, each of us is our own particular creature, our own svarupa, then it's really also good to know, well, what is the habitat that is wholesome for your kind of creature? You know, people often, they come to me and they want me to help them with their problems and what should I do? What should I do? And I'm learning to, to say things like, well, get clear on the kind of creature that you are and then find out, pay attention, what is the wholesome habitat? that supports you to be the one that you are, you know, just like different animals and birds and bugs on um, plants, they need the right habitat to thrive. So pay attention. What are the habitats that help you thrive, that help you feel your own ananda, your own enjoyment and bliss, which is your, your birthright. And also, Another, you know, next turn of that can be, um, and, and what is your function in your habitat? That's all you really need to know. What kind of creature are you? What's your wholesome habitat? And what's your function? What are you here to do? And if you know that, you're going to be happy. <laughs> or you're at least going to be happier. <laughs> I mean, we can't all be completely happy because there's a lot of hard things about life. I understand that, but it really, 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 really helps to know what is your function. I know when I started really getting clear on it, it just, I just relaxed a lot. You know, oh, my, my function is to nourish heart connection. That's what I've always done. Whether I was a school teacher, facilitator, priest, daughter, you know, whatever. That's what I always, when I'm feeling like I'm, nourishing heart connection that's when i feel like okay this is this is why i'm here and i've been working on further refining uh my function which i think i'm looking at the clock i'll save if anybody wants to talk more about this together after announcements but um i think that um that's where i'd like to leave it um just so in summary you know just um how are you doing in tuning in to that which arouses and nourishes your own sense of enjoyment and pleasure? How are you doing in your ability to let it soak in, to cultivate it? How are you about finding your place where you are? What is the habitat that nourishes you? And what is your function in your ecosystem? Those might be some questions that we might uh, consider. So I'll turn over the mic to my dear Dharma brother, Reverend Cheever Baugh, and or whoever is making the announcements. And then I'll hang around until 7.30 or so, and we'd be happy to keep talking about any of this with you. And thank you so much for your presence and your Svarupa uh, and your Ananda. <laughs>
Beings, okay, chant, yeah, beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. 